Thank you for listening to the Reformation Bible Church podcast. We hope you are edified and encouraged by our ministry as you listen to our Gospel of John sermon series. For more sermons and resources, please visit the RBC website at www.rbcbakersfield.org. Thank you once again, and may the Lord bless you. Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for allowing me to be a vessel, a broken vessel, by which you speak through. I pray for your people this morning, your saints. I pray that they have ears to hear and eyes to see. Their hearts are ready to receive the word of God. This word that you have inspired also broken vessels. Lord, use me for your honor. Use me for your will. Let your people not hear me or see you, but hear and see you. Lord, let your glory shine this morning. Not my own human intellect, not the way I can put it, put words together or sentences together, but Lord, have me rely solely on your Holy Spirit, the precious gift that you give to your sheep, for you are the good shepherd. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Webster's Dictionary defines the word promise like this. A statement telling someone that you will definitely do something or that something will definitely happen. An indication of future success or improvement. A reason to expect that something will happen in the future. We know all too well about the word promises. We give promises. Some of us are numb to promises because of what happened to us in the past. Some people have made us promises and they failed to complete their end of the bargain. We live in a society where promises are made. Some promises are kept. But the majority of promises are broken. We as Americans, at the first of the year, make promises to ourselves that we'll lose weight, we'll read the Bible, we'll go out and evangelize more, we will do various things, but by April, by March, those promises are long gone. We as Americans know about promises because Promises are made to us daily by political leaders and those running for office. But we're also familiar with those same leaders breaking their promises. Let me give you an example. 1968, Richard Nixon campaigned for the presidency with a pledge to end the war in Vietnam. There are even reports that Nixon had a secret plan to end the war without the United States being perceived as the losing side. Instead, after being elected president, Nixon continued to press American forces in Vietnam, resulting in an increase in combat deaths just within six months of Nixon assuming office. Nixon lied, and in 1974, his lie caught up to him as he was impeached from his presidential duties. I guess the great general... And Emperor of France, Napoleon, was right when he said, if you wish to be success in this world, 
promise everything, deliver nothing. Some of you live by that quote. Some of you know people who live by that quote, especially people who are uh, who you work with. I used to work with people who would try to do everything in their power to just gain an edge and get higher in the totem pole. And it would it's shocking the things that they would do to you. Our jobs promise us benefits and wages, and we never get them. Your kids promise to clean their room and to behave, and they never do. Brides and grooms promise each other, for better for worse, for richer for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish each other until they are parted by death. What a great promise that is. Yet the divorce rate in America is at 50%. So some break their promises. But isn't it a beautiful thing when someone promises you something and they keep it? The happiness that you bring or you get. It's even more beautiful when you promise someone something and you fulfill it. You feel some type of of way that you accomplish something special because you completed your end of the bargain, but we all know how horrible you feel when someone doesn't keep their promise and how angry you feel, or even worse, when you don't keep your promises. Well, unlike politicians, and unlike friends, unlike family, unlike your jobs, unlike your kids, unlike yourself, unlike brides and grooms, broken promises is not a problem when it comes to God. We serve a promise-keeping God. In fact, you can sum up the message of the Old Testament in two words. Promises made. And likewise, you can sum up the message of the New Testament in two words. Promises kept. The promises that were made by God, particularly of the promised seed that would come in the beginning, Genesis 3.15, This seed would come and crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace, of God's grace, for the sake of Christ. All of those things were kept by one person, Jesus. This person that was promised in the Old Testament and through types and shadows was revealed in the New. He promised Abraham a land, a kingship, and a people. He promised to give us wisdom if we ask in James 1.5. He promised to make a way out of temptation in 1 Corinthians 10.13. And he promises us that wonderful, great promise that we all are awaiting this moment. Jesus promises that he will return. We serve a promise-keeping God. But out of all the promises given by God, and we can... Be here till night and just dwell and think about all the wonderful blessings and gifts and promises that God gives to his believers. Out of all these promises, I believe the sweetest one of them all is the eternal security the believer has in Christ. Some call this doctrine the perseverance of the saints, the preservation of the saints, the eternal security of the believer. Some say once saved, Always saved. Some say this is the fifth point of Calvinism. 
This doctrine carries a truth that all those who are found in Christ, all those who are saved and regenerate, will never lose their salvation. But God will keep them. God will preserve them until the end of time. It's this doctrine that sweetens that unbreakable chain we know as the doctrines of grace. It is sort of that cherry on top to the doctrines of grace. If the doctrines of grace were a ring, I believe the last point, the perseverance of the saints, would be that sparkling band that holds all the diamonds in its place. Without that band, they all fall apart. Without that band, logically and biblically, nothing makes sense. The truth of the preserving grace of God is what Charles Spurgeon said was the enticing bait that drew me to Christ. Spurgeon said, I must confess that the doctrine of the final perseverance of the saints was a bait that my soul could not resist. I thought it was sort of a life insurance, an insurance of my character, an insurance of my soul, an insurance of my eternal destiny. I knew that I could not keep myself, but if Christ promised to keep me, then I should forever be safe. And I longed and I prayed to find Christ because I knew that if I found him, he would not give me a temporary and trumpery salvation, such as some preach. And times haven't changed but eternal life, which could never be lost. A.W. Pink said the final perseverance of the saints is the one of the grand and distinctive blessings proclaimed by the gospel. It is an integral part of salvation, and therefore an outcry against this doctrine is an attack upon the very foundation of the believer's comfort and the believer's insurance. Richard Baxter said, In our first paradise in Eden... There is a way to go out, but no way to go back in. But as for the heavenly paradise, there is a way to go in, but not a way to get out. Our confession, the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, gives the best summary of this wonderful doctrine, as it says in chapter 17, the perseverance in the saints, those whom God has accepted in the Beloved, and has effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, and given the precious faith of his elect, can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace. But they will certainly preserve in that state to the end and be eternally saved. This is because the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance, and therefore he continues to beget and nourish them in faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the spirit which lead to immortality. And though many storms and floods arise and beat against the saints, yet these things shall never be able to sweep them off the foundation and the rock which they are fastened upon by faith. Even though, through unbelief and temptations of Satan, the sight and feeling of the light of God may for a time be clouded and obscured from them, Yet God is still the same. And they are sure to be kept by his power until their salvation is complete. When they shall enjoy the purchased possession which is theirs. For they are engraved upon the palm of hands, of his hands. And their names have been written in his book of life from all 
eternity. This is the doctrine by which we rest our head at night. This is that soft pillow. This is the doctrine that's the warm blanket to our wearied souls. It is this doctrine that reveals the love of God, that personal love of God, for his own people. A promise given by God that his elect will never fall away and fall from grace, but will forever be kept in his hand. So far, in the book of John, chapter 10, we have seen many things. But the theme of John chapter 10 has been the relationship between a shepherd and his sheep. We've learned the good shepherd protects the sheep from wolves and lions and thieves. The good shepherd knows his sheep and the sheep know him and they follow him. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Well, today we will learn a new truth. The good shepherd secures and preserves the sheep and true sheep will never fall away. So this morning I want us to look at John chapter 10. And we will give special attention to verses 29 to 27. I have two points for us to consider this morning. The first point we will see in verse 27, the powerful voice of Christ. And in verse 28 and verse 29, we will see the preserving hand of Christ. So let's stand, if you will. John chapter 10, verses 29 to 30. The word of the Lord says, At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of, of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You may be seated. <clears throat> so let's first look at the powerful voice of Christ. Jesus says in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Now this is coming from a conversation between Jesus and the Jews. And Jesus tells them plainly, You don't believe me because you're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. You see, this is very interesting that Christ would say something like this. Because as you know, the Jews thought that the Messiah was exclusively for them. That Christ would come and he would conquer like, like David did. And he would be that king, that political leader. And he would conquer Rome and he would conquer the world. But as Pastor said two weeks ago, let's notice the first word here. My. He says, my sheep. Pastor said last week, or two weeks ago, Jesus does not say everyone, right? He doesn't say some. He doesn't say many. Jesus did not universalize the hearing of his voice. He doesn't say all. But instead, 
Christ does something so amazing, he personalizes the relationship between him and his people. And he does that by saying, my sheep. This is personal. Jesus is speaking of who? Who are his sheep? Well, as you know, it's the elect. That certain people group. Jesus says when he says, my sheep, he's referring to the chosen people who were given to him by the Father. Jesus uses words, uses the words, my sheep, which indicates that he owns the sheep. Anytime you say, my, it means you have rights over that. I play a game with my nephew, Nazareth, all the time. I say, my blanket, or my pacifier. And then we go back and forth for about ten minutes and say, no mine, no mine, no mine. Because Nazareth knows, no, that's mine. That belongs to me. I have ownership over that. I have rights over that. We all know his dad owns it. But Jesus here is saying, my sheep. It's personal here. He is, he is their shepherd. They are his sheep. Then he says something amazing. I know my sheep. Using the same language he uses in John 10.14, I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me. Again, Jesus personalizes the relationship he has with his people. What does it mean for Christ to know his sheep? And many people have debated this over the years. How does Christ know his own? When Jesus says he knows his sheep, he's not referring to the type of knowledge that he has, that he knows which sheep likes certain foods. No, this sheep likes grass, and this sheep likes bugs, and this sheep likes hay. He's not saying that. He's not saying that he knows the sheep's favorite type of music. This one likes Lecrae. This one likes Shylin. This one likes Tripoli. He's not saying he knows the sheep's type of favorite sports teams. This one likes the Niners, likes the Cowboys, likes the Lakers. He's not saying any of those things. Because that's what we are prone to know when we say we know something about someone. But that is a basic surface human type of knowing. Here, Jesus is not saying any of those things at all. In fact, he doesn't even give the slightest clue of that's what he means when he knows certain people. But this is an intimate, personal, affectionate type of knowledge. We know this to be known as the doctrine of foreknowledge. And the biblical definition of foreknowledge doesn't mean that you know something about someone beforehand. You know what they're going to do. You know what they're going to say. But instead, the biblical doctrine, the biblical definition of foreknowledge means to love someone beforehand. And this is what's so amazing, in spite of what you already know about them. God said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. God said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. The psalmist says, your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me. When as of yet, 
there was not one of them. That's amazing. This knowing is a deep, personal type of knowing. And this knowing is the very definition of love. The foreknowledge of God is the foundation by which he predestinates his people. Romans 8.29 says, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Paul does not say, those whom he foresaw, he predestined. Paul doesn't say, those whom God saw in the future, and therefore them, him seeing them do certain things, based off that, he predestines them. God doesn't look into the future and see something about you. There's nothing that God could have saw about you. God didn't look into the future and see you choosing him. And therefore, based off you choosing him, he chooses you. That would be the doctrine of reaction, not the doctrine of foreknowledge and predestination. That would mean that God is reacting to what you are doing, therefore making you your own partial savior. And glory, logically, must be shared at that moment between you and God. That's not the way things work. Glory is not shared between you and God. God does not react off what you are doing. Because if that was so, if we get to heaven, we can tell God, yeah, God, you elected me, and you foresaw what I was going to do. And honestly, God, I couldn't have done it without you. But quite frankly, God, you couldn't have done it without me either. Because I had to choose you, right, for all of this to happen. God doesn't see anything good in us. Romans 3 makes that very clear. Before the foundation of the world, God doesn't look at two people and he doesn't say, oh, this one is going to grow up to be a wonderful doctor. He's going to go to the puppets of the park. He's going to go to the young and reformed. He's going to go feed the homeless. He's going to go to the marketplace. He's going to go to every prayer meeting, every Wednesday service, every Sunday service. And this one... I, I can see he's going to be a drug addict. He's going to be a gangster. He's not going to have the same benefits and rights that this one did. And, and he's not going to do the things that this one is going to do. That doesn't happen at all. That's not how God chooses people. There's not people that run down a conveyor belt. And God just saying, boom, you're heaven, you're hell, you're heaven, you're hell. That doesn't happen at all. But instead, what God does is he looks at two people who hate him, two people who, if they had the chance, would spit in his face. And this one receives what they don't deserve. Grace, unmerited favor, mercy, love. And the interesting thing about this is this one, he doesn't even pay no mind to. He doesn't even look at this one. Because this one receives what he deserves. Judgment and wrath. And God gives this one what he wants. His sin. His freedom. And if he presses a little harder, God will give him more freedom. To let him do whatever he wants. That's not how things work. Instead, God in his 
love and his mercy elects those for his own goodwill and for his own good purpose. There is no divine favoritism. Because if you think about it, what would favor you in the sight of God? There's nothing. He's just looking at two dirty sinners. Charles Spurgeon would describe it this way. In the very beginning, when this great universe laid in the mind of God, like the unborn force in the acorn cup, long eerie the echoes awoke the solitudes before the mounds were brought forth, and long ere the light flashed through the sky, God loved his chosen people. Before there was any created being, when the ether was not yet fanned by an angel's wing, when space itself had no existence, when there was nothing save God alone, even then in that loneliness of duty and in that deep quiet and profundity, his bowels moved with love for his chosen. Their names were written on his heart and they were very dear to his soul. Jesus loved his people before the foundation of the world, even from eternity. And when he called me by his grace, he said to me, and this is what he says to all of those, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, have drawn thee to myself. Your salvation is much deeper than you know. Why does Jesus love us? Or why do we love Jesus? Because he first loved us. Jesus loved us in the ancient of days. He and only he had the sovereign right to have mercy upon whom he would have mercy and to have compassion upon whom he would have compassion. And after the counsel of his own goodwill and of his own good pleasure, he chooses freely to get to set his love upon a particular people. Again, Jesus, uh, Spurgeon would say, their names are written in his book. They became his portion and his inheritance. Jesus loved me before time and space began. And in the fullness of time, he came and he paid my ransom. This is why the doctrine of foreknowledge is so vital and so important. Because if you get foreknowledge right, then you get your salvation right. If you get foreknowledge wrong, then you get your salvation wrong. It all comes down to who's the first cause. Is it you or is it God? Did you choose or did God choose you? That is why I can say, and like uh, last week's sermon, I can hear a sermon on definite atonement, on limited atonement, one of the doctrines that 80% of Christians hate because of what they think it represents, and I can sit there and I can cry my eyes out. Because I know that when I was not even born, not even a thought in my parents' mind, something 2,000 years ago was happening on my behalf. I can read things like Isaiah 53, and I can marvel and wonder as it says, Surely he has bore our griefs. And he has carried our sorrows. But he was pierced for our transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, by his stripes, we, those whom he has loved before the foundation of the world, are healed. 
Or I can read Matthew 121 and I can, and, and I can just, it brings me to my knees and she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. I can say Jesus carried the weight of my sin. I can say that my sin was nailed to a cross. I can say when Christ was looking at that slave market of sin, I was standing there and he said, I'm going to the cross for that one and that one and that one. If you lose foreknowledge, and if you say that it's up to you, then you ruin and you lose the personal intention of the atonement of Christ's death on the cross. I can say when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he was speaking of my personal redemption. Something that happened in eternity past, oh so long ago. Foreknowledge. Christ coming, dying on the cross. It's so miraculous. And it also brings me to my knees that something that happened so long ago was actualized three years ago. The same with you. Think about when you came to Christ in the fullness of time when God said, okay, enough is enough. Come home. Daughter. Son. If you are saved right now, if you are regenerate this morning, this is your story. This is how you became a Christian. Jesus owns his sheep. Jesus loves his sheep. But also the sheep hear his voice. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. The voice of the shepherd is all the sheep know. The sheep are not familiar with other tones of voices. Their ears are only inclined to one sound, and that is their shepherd. Jesus' voice is not a soft, polite whisper. But when Christ calls you, it is a thunderous, powerful call by which he says, you are mine. And I have loved you before the foundation of the world. And then he draws you to himself. He says to Matthew, come and follow me. He says to Simon and Andrew, follow me. And they come. Like we're going to learn next week or next month. He says, Lazarus. Come forth. This is exactly how the Good Shepherd called you. There was a time and there was a day when the gospel was presented to you and you heard a voice within a voice. There were times when you heard the gospel. I grew up in church. There were false conversions that I had. I can remember crying at the altar. But Christ never drew me. It was a drawing, but it wasn't time yet for him to say, okay, no more with the games, no more with playing around. You're mine. This is the effectual call. When Jesus calls you, his voice can't be ignored. His voice can't be muted. His voice can't be resisted. This is an effectual call. When Jesus chooses to call you to himself, you will come. And we have the great promise that he will continue to preserve you in a state of grace. When Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, the, sh the sheep respond to the invitation. 
And next week I'll explain why this is our greatest motivation for evangelism. But what is the response of the sheep after hearing the voice of Jesus? Well, it concludes that they follow him. Easy believism says if you just accept Jesus to be your savior, then you're good. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. It's not enough to to accept Jesus as your savior. But you also have to acknowledge him as your Lord. Jesus here is saying, my sheep don't only hear my voice, but they follow me. Follow me refers to they obey me. True sheep who hear the voice of Christ obey the shepherd. Christ commands unconditional surrender to his will. They come under his authority and he is their master. They obey all the Lord's instructions. The Puritans would say it like this. All of Christ's sheep are branded like how a bull is branded or like how sheep are branded. And these sheep are branded, all of Christ's sheep are branded with two marks. One on the ear and one on the foot. These marks identify them as belonging to their master. The one on the ear signifies the sheep hear the voice of Christ. And the mark on the foot signifies the sheep follow Christ. So let us ask ourselves this morning, do you bear the double mark? Do you listen to Christ by the means of not an audible voice, but of his word? Do you follow Christ and what he's prescribed in his word? And let me tell you one thing. If you're listening to false teachers, you're not hearing the voice of Christ. And I'm not even going to name names, but you know who they are. Do you listen to the voice of Christ? Do you follow Christ? Let us examine ourselves this morning. The philosopher Plato said, the unexamined life is a wasted life. We know this to be true as Christians, for we are to examine ourselves daily and to see if we are of the faith. We are to take up our cross daily. We are to die to ourselves daily. I pray that you examine yourself this morning before the Lord's table. A couple of ways of doing that is by checking what fruit you produce in your own life and, and what are you doing, not in the sense of earning your salvation, but am I really of the faith? Another way of doing this is, Mark Dever would say, join the local church. And that is assurance of salvation corporate. We here at the church, one of the main functions is to help each other make sure that we are not deceiving ourselves. Amen. That is the importance of the local church. That is to the significance of the local church. When we see someone in sin, we gently and politely call them out on it. And we also give them great encouragement in great love and great patience through that. So Christ knows the sheep. The sheep hear the voice of Christ. They follow the voice of Christ. Now let's look at the last point, the preserving hand of Christ. As if knowing you wasn't enough, as if choosing you wasn't enough, 
as if saving you wasn't enough, now Christ gives more promises to us. Verse 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. What a great promise that is. Notice the words, I give. Jesus says that in the present tense, which means this, eternal life is presently yours. You have eternal life right now. All of those who are true sheep have eternal life right now. And the Bible is full of examples of how the believer is currently receiving the benefits and the blessings and the gifts from God. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. These blessings don't include your kids behaving. These blessings don't include security in your workforce. These blessings don't include more money and more fame. But these blessings include justification. These blessings include redemption, regeneration, sonship, joint heirs, reconciliation, forgiveness, resurrection, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and the cherry on top, eternal life. If you're a Christ sheep this morning, your seat in heaven is currently being reserved for you. And all the host of heaven is awaiting your arrival. And why is that? Because every time a sheep goes to those gates in heaven, it's another one of God's promises being fulfilled. Jesus says, He gives them. Again, the them Jesus is referring to is His people. And like a good shepherd, what does He do? He gives them eternal life. Not a successful life. Not a healthy and wealthy life. Not a life where your goals and your dreams will be fulfilled. Not knocking those things. Sometimes God gives you those things. But Jesus gives his sheep comfort that in spite of earthly, temporal trials, eternal life awaits us. Jesus doesn't say, my sheep have earned eternal life, or my sheep are doing good deeds, therefore I give them eternal life. Eternal life does not hinge on what you do. But this gift is a special grace that Jesus gives freely to whoever he chooses. So let's get this straight. The Father loves you before the universe was created. He chooses you in spite of your hatred and rebellion against him. He gives you over to the Son as a love gift. The Son comes, lives for you, dies for you, raises, rises from the dead for you. And in the fullness of time, the Father draws you by his grace, sends the Holy Spirit to change the disposition of your heart, seals you with the Holy Spirit, then God compels you to repent and believe in His Son, and then He gives you eternal life. Why? That's my response. That's everybody's response. And I've read every book I can find on this. And I've read every article I can find on this. And I've listened to sermons after sermon after sermon from some of the greatest minds in Christian and church history. And they've all said the same thing. For his glory. That's what he does everything for. Parents, on a side note, if you want to teach your kid a, and, and 
and root inside your kid a solid foundation, teach them about the glory of God, it will help them more than you ever know. And it will also help yourself when you're going through trials and tribulations. <clears throat> I can't understand why Christ chose to save me. You can't understand why Christ chose to save you. And I can honestly say, if Christ didn't save me, then it would be because it wasn't his will to do so. Charles Spurgeon said, I can understand why the reason I am saved, except upon the grace that God would have it so. I cannot look ever so earnestly and discover any reason in myself why I should be a partaker of divine grace. If I am not at this moment without Christ, it is because Christ Jesus would have his way with me, his will with me, and that will was that I should be with him where he is, and I should share his glory. I cannot put the crown nowhere upon the head of him whose mighty grace has saved me. I can put the hand, I can, I can put the crown of nowhere upon the head of him who has mightily saved me from grace, from his grace, or from his wrath, and his grace has saved me from going down into the pit. Jesus gives us eternal life. John 3.36 uses the same type of language. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but wrath of God remains on him. Notice again the word has is used in the present tense. God does not hold out eternal life until you get to heaven. But instead he gives eternal life to the believer immediately. This eternal life doesn't refer to your future but also refers to your current standing in Christ. Let's remember, while you were dead in your sin, your federal head was Adam, and we can only receive death. But now that we are in Christ, now that we are saved and regenerate and sealed with the Holy Spirit, we have been made alive, receiving life on the basis of faith. This is the union that we have with Christ. Christ dies in order that we must die. His death on the cross was our death. His resurrection was our resurrection. His life is our life. That is what drove Paul to say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me. In the life I live, which now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Foreknowledge is not just something that was made up by Augustine and John Calvin. It's rooted in the words of Paul. This is personal. And brothers and sisters, don't ever get tired of hearing this. Don't ever get tired of hearing the love of God and what he has and how he expresses that love toward you. I know as Reformed people we say, ah, oh, the love of God, love of God. But that's a great thing. And that's a glorious thing. Because he doesn't love everyone the same. But that's for another sermon. Our lives are hidden in Christ. And therefore we currently, positionally, have eternal life. And how sweet that reality will be when that truth is actualized in heaven. God does not give us one-year contracts and then after the year, he evaluates you and he says, ah, oh, you did this good, you did this good, and he renews your contract. But no, on sight, he gives you eternal life. J.C. Ryle said, Christ gives his sheep eternal life. He bestows on them freely a right and a title to heaven, pardoning their sins and clothing them with a perfect righteousness. 
And get this, money, health, and worldly prosperity, he often wisely withholds from them. But he never fails to give them grace, peace, and glory. Christ, he gives us hope for the future, and he gives us comfort in the present. Brothers and sisters, as you know, this world is not our home. As Jim Reeves once said, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasure is laid up somewhere beyond the blue. This is not our final destination. Paul tells us in, in Philippians 1, our citizenship is in heaven. This life will last forever. This is why we are eternally secure. God does not give us, like I said, one-year deals. He gives us a max contract. And we will forever be on God's team. Jesus says, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. They will never perish means not one of my sheep will receive what they rightly deserve. Wrath and justice. We will never fall away. Not one of us will miss the bus to heaven. We all will be, get, we all will be there. We all will be taken away. In verse 28. Christ ends, or Christ gives us one of the greatest promises one could ever give, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He goes on and gives us even more comfort and even more protection in verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one will be able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. This is why we are eternally secure in Christ, because we are not only protected in Christ's hands, but we're double protected in the Father's hands. So if you manage by some way to get through Christ, then you got to get through the Father. Some that object this biblical truth of the perseverance of the saints might say, well, yes, God can save you, but you can lose your salvation. How many of you have ever heard that? It's very common. I would reply, well, if you can lose your salvation, then you're making Jesus out to be a liar. And even worse, you're making Jesus out to be a sinner. Then I would take him to John 6. And on a side note, if you're dealing with Jehovah Witnesses, if you're dealing with other people from various denominations and uh, different strands of theology, can you take them to John? There's so many mountains that they won't be able to climb. So many mountains. But I will take them to John 6, and I will read to them John 6, verses 37 through 40. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So follow my argument here. They're saying you can lose your salvation. Here, Christ says he came to do the will of his Father. And he always completes the mission. He always completes the task. Now, what's the will of the Father? That Jesus should lose none. That the Father has given him. If you say you can lose your salvation, then you're saying Jesus failed to do the will of the Father. Because he lost you. You're also saying the Father made a mistake by entrusting Jesus with the elect. 
Imagine that. If you say you can lose your salvation, then you must explain how it is that the whole trinity can be completely overturned by your free will. Meaning this, the eternal intention of the Father, the saving of the Son, and the sealing of the Holy Spirit can all be unraveled because you chose not to follow Christ anymore. So then the whole trinity can get messed up because of you. Some might say, well, it's up to myself to keep myself saved. Anyone's ever heard of that? There's a couple of problems with that. First, you're saying God saves you, and then he leaves your whole salvation up to yourself. Meaning he does the work in the beginning. He says, okay, now it's up to you, my brother. God does his part. Now it's up to you to do your part. That's a problem because then salvation becomes a works-based system where you have to meet certain requirements in your life and you have to do certain things to keep yourself saved and to keep yourself secured. That doesn't make sense. One of the themes of the Bible is covenant theology. And we hold that those who are in Adam can never receive eternal life. They are under a covenant of works and they will receive the wrath that they deserve. But what God does is he saves those people out of the covenant of works and he brings them into a covenant of grace. So therefore, you don't have to do any works. But you are under grace. But if you say that salvation is up to your own doing, then you're saying that that covenant of grace that you are in is not enough. You're bringing yourself back into a covenant of works. It doesn't make any sense. The new covenant is a better covenant. Why? Because we are under grace. No longer under the law. Logically and biblically, it makes no sense. If you say you could be saved and then lose your salvation, then you're saying the blood of Christ that he shed for you was wasted. If you're saying you can lose your salvation, then you're saying when Jesus says in John 17, 9, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but those whom you have given me. There's that word again. For they are yours. If you say you can use your salvation, then you're saying Jesus' prayers cannot be answered. And Jesus fails to make intercession for you. If you say you can lose your salvation, then you must agree that you were too big for Jesus to carry in the palm of his hand. Jesus says in verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. If your salvation was possible to lose, then the Father isn't greater than all. But you are greater than all. You are greater than Him. Because you are able to be snatched out by your own free will of not only Christ's hands, but the Father's hands. If it is true that you can lose your salvation, that you can be lost, then I would say God will lose something even more. Because you would just lose your salvation. God would lose his reputation. Because God has said, and God has pledged, and God has promised, and God has sworn by his word that his sheep will never perish. And finally, if you can lose your salvation, then quite honestly, you were never saved to begin with.
Pastor Steve Lawson says this, What good is it to be chosen before the foundation of the world if in the end you die lost? What good is it to be redeemed by the Son with a definite atonement if in the end you die lost? What good is it to be effectually called by the Spirit and to be begotten by the Spirit in a new birth if in the end you die lost? Close quote. The doctrines of predestination, the doctrines of election, the doctrine of foreknowledge, the doctrine of definite atonement, the doctrine of, of effectual calling are all sweetened knowing that those whom the Father entrusted to the Son will forever be secured in His hand. That's the band to the diamond. Michael Horton said, those who think that they can lose their salvation are not trusting in Christ alone for their salvation, but partially trusting in their own righteousness. Such teaching would have you believe that the sacrifice of Jesus was insufficient to make his people perfect forever or save them to the uttermost, or that Jesus was not enough, such that in addition to what Christ did, they must join their own ability to preserve to the end in order to maintain their own standing before God. Such persons think Christ made the down payment of their salvation, and get this, but they have to keep it up, a monthly installment for their salvation. Those who say, it's up to you to keep yourself saved, I promise you, you will never reach heaven. Brothers and sisters, if you are a true follower of Christ this morning, you are forever and you will forever be saved. You are forever branded as belonging to Christ. You don't have to earn your way to heaven. Heaven has came down to you. And you are presently, right now, being preserved for that time and that moment when you walk through. Now please don't misunderstand me in this sermon. I'm not saying that you can go on your life and show no fruit or no evidences of your salvation. I'm not saying that, oh, well, I'm saved. He chose me. I can do whatever I want. I'm going to heaven anyway. That's not what I'm saying. You must evaluate yourselves, like I said, daily. But what I'm saying is true sheep, those who bear the double mark, those who hear the words of Christ, those who follow Christ, they will never, ever fall away. And yes, you will stumble. And yes, you will trip many times. But we have a promise that we will never, completely and finally, fall away from the faith. It has been said that Noah and the ark fell many times, but he never once fell out of the ark. God preserved Noah, and God is preserving you this very moment. John Calvin says, Our salvation is certain because it is in the hand of God. Our faith is weak, and we are prone to wander, but God, who has taken us under his protection, is sufficiently powerful to scatter with one breath all the power of his adversaries. With one breath, God can blow all of your troubles away. We are forever and will forever be kept in his hands. One last quote. Charles Spurgeon said, All of the promises of man 
have been defeated, but not the promises of God. The promises of man may be broken. Many of them are made to be broken, but the promises of God shall be fulfilled. He is a promise maker, but it is, but he will never be a promise breaker. He's a promise keeping God, and every one of his people shall prove it to be so. This is my grateful personal confidence. The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Unworthy me, lost and ruined me, he will yet save me. And I among the blood washed people shall wave the palm and wear the crown and shout loud for victory. If you're going through trials, if you're going through situations in your life where you feel that you're not saved, you feel like you have to earn your salvation, let this be some encouragement to you that something that happened in eternity past is now presently being worked and it will finally be consummated in the end. Will you stand with me?